Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Forum, Nature Biotechnologies podcast, where we talk to leading researchers in the life sciences about the latest advances in their fields. I'm Michael Francisco, a senior editor at the journal. Today on episode 20, we'll be talking about super resolution and expansion microscopy, which enables complex biological systems to be imaged with nanoscale precision. Our host is Barbara Shafay, chief editor of Nature Biotechnology, and her guests are Ed Boyden, a professor in the departments of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, Media Arts and Sciences, and Biological Engineering at MIT, and Johan Donzel, Assistant Professor at the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria. Barbara, expansion microscopy is a really exciting technology and quite interdisciplinary, with biology, physics, and engineering all involved. Can you tell us a little more? Yeah, thanks, Michael. So expansion microscopy is a technique where the cells are embedded in a polymer gel, which is then swelled up to expand the sample, enabling us to see really small nanoscale cellular structures. So traditional light microscopy techniques have really been plagued by limitations imposed by laws of physics, which prevent these microscopes from resolving features below a certain size, which is known as the diffraction limit. So super resolution approaches are overcoming this physical limitation, and we can now see small cellular structures at the nanometer level. And this discovery actually won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2014. Great. Can you tell us a little more about your guests, Ed and Johan? Yeah, Ed and Johan both work on developing super resolution and expansion microscopy methods, and both look at imaging neurons and cells in the brain. Ed specifically works to map and image the brain in order to eventually be able to repair neural circuits and disease. And Johan is also working on the brain and tissue imaging, as well as developing computational methods to analyze these data. Great. Let's get into it. Here's episode 20 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Hello, welcome back to the Forum podcast. Today we're going to be talking about super resolution microscopy. And I have with me Drs. Ed Boyden from MIT and Johan Donzel from the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria. As we all know, many core components in our cells, such as DNA, RNA, proteins, and lipids, are only a few nanometers in size, which is substantially smaller than what can be seen with traditional light microscopy. So I guess this leads me to my first question for you both, which is, could you describe briefly what super-resolution microscopy is compared to what we traditionally think about when we discuss microscopy images? Ed, do you want to go first? Um, I guess I can go first, sure. Light has a finite size or wavelength, and seeing things much smaller than the wavelength of light is 
is very difficult uh, due to the laws of physics. But in the past several decades, there have been several methods proposed for breaking that diffraction limit of light microscopy uh, using different physical and chemical tricks. Uh, you can take many photons from a single fluorophore and then find the centroid of where the photons came from as a way of pinpointing the location of a fluorophore. You can use clever tricks with lasers to excite and, and de-excite fluorophores in order to hone in on just a subset of them. Uh, and then uh, recently, our group has been, uh, and Johan and others have been pioneering uh, technologies in this space as well, uh, a strategy of taking biological specimens and through a chemical process, making them physically larger, uh, which we call expansion microscopy. So there are different physical and chemical tricks that you can bring to bear to overcome this previously thought to be fundamental diffraction limit of light microscopy. Johan, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think this was a very good uh, description. So uh, what people realized, and, uh, and I think this is a, a great achievement, is that we don't have to live with what microscopes give us per se, but really uh, we can, uh, rather than just optimizing the optics, uh, there is room to think out of the box and, and come up with, with concepts that would allow us to distinguish fluorophores, which wouldn't normally be distinguishable. And well, the first concept that was uh, introduced in that regard was uh, stat microscopy by turning off those fluorophores that should be silent at any given time. And then, you know, based on this, uh, a plethora of, of methods uh, came up uh, that nowadays uh, constitute an amazing toolbox to look at biological specimens with much higher precision and definition than what the standard laws of physics would allow us to do. Yeah, thanks. That, that's really great. So, you know, we were talking, you know, standard light microscopy is about roughly 200 nanometers, right, is what we can image there. And, you know, now we're talking about imaging down to the angstrom level, which is 0.1 nanometers, which is, you know, approximately the diameter of an atom, which is just crazy to me. So what were the main, I guess, technological advances that enabled us to get to this level of imaging? You mentioned a couple of specific uh, methods that have been developed. Yeah, uh, well, as I, as I said before, to take fluorophores, not as something that simply shines, but as something that can be actively controlled or whose, whose molecular properties, whose molecular states can be exploited, that, that was a key ingredient. And with, with this, it's now possible to, to either deterministically write on-off contrast into the sample with a light pattern or to keep fluorophores within a diffraction-limited spot silent, except for one that we can then localize with very high definition. Yeah, the expansion methods that we've been playing with, you know, we use a hydrogel to pull apart fluorophores or to pull apart biomolecules that can be labeled with fluorophores. So we can take a preserved biological specimen, form a swallowable hydrogel throughout it, anchor key biomolecules or labels to the hydrogel, soften up the specimen, and then adding water expands the gel and pulls apart those labels or fluorophores. So that's another riffing off of what a, a Johan, a Johan was uh, outlining uh, a strategy for, for separating uh, chemicals so that an ordinary microscope, in this case, can image them. And the chemicals could be the fluorescent labels attached to the biomolecules, or in the case of fluorescent proteins, they can be genetically encoded biomolecules themselves. Yeah, that's very cool. So you're able to, to see these structures at many different levels. So I'm guessing, you know, um, all of these different methods have 
specific biological applications that, um, you know, some methods are probably better suited for certain questions and others might be suited for other questions. Do you, could you talk a little bit about, about that and how do you determine which microscopy method would be the best? So, so I would maybe argue that it's not just about a particular method, but if there is a certain imaging task, one would really want to to think through the type of information that one would like to extract from a particular measurement and then take all the aspects into account. And that includes how to label specific molecules, what resolution we ultimately want to target, whether we want to image in a living or, or in a fixed specimen. And uh, well, and, and the spatial scales, uh, not just down to the nanometer scale, but also across scales that we eventually want to target. And, and that's the beauty of the stage that we are now in the field, that there is a lot uh, to offer to researchers uh, in, in all these dimensions. Yeah, different technologies will have different sort of fundamental limits and also different practical limits. Some will work well with living samples, some will not work at all with living samples. Uh, each one also has characteristic resolutions, numbers of colors, and applicability to 3D specimens. Some are limited to fairly thin samples, others can scale to large 3D samples. So uh, thanks to the sort of clear physical and chemical principles of these tools, uh, there's, uh, I think, a way of thinking about the scientific question that needs to be answered that then can lend itself to a choice of tool. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And maybe one thing that we should keep in mind is that we are typically not visualizing the biological structures themselves, but what we are visualizing is the fluorophores. And uh, this, is, uh, this is a very important aspect in the sense that we need to have good ways of targeting these fluorophores to, to our structures, and we need to make sure that they are not uh, far displaced from our structure of interest. So taking these things into account will not only guide the choice of, of super-resolution method, but really guide the overall process. That makes sense. So you both have mentioned here doing this in, in living cells. I, I know that a lot of this work has previously done in vitro conditions uh, on slides, but are there what are the differences that we're talking about when you're we're trying to do an experiment and visual, visualize components of a living cell? Well, I would argue that uh, for, first and foremost, we need to be able to extract the information that we want in a manner that is compatible with the living tissue. And uh, quite generically, there will be a, an interlinked um, well, conundrum of limitations, meaning there is signal-to-noise ratio that one would like to achieve in a particular measurement. There is a certain target resolution that one would like to achieve to extract a certain type of information. But at the same time, uh, the cells of the tissue uh, will only want to be exposed to a certain amount of light. And uh, to, uh, you know, to, to break these uh, intertwined limitations uh, is a matter of very intense ongoing uh, research. In our group, we focused on imaging of fixed tissues, so non-living things, uh, through the expansion process that I mentioned. So I'm less familiar with the live uh, sample methodologies. But there are some interesting tricks you can play with fixed tissue imaging. So for example, many multiplexing techniques, where you bring in probes, image a specimen, and remove them over many cycles. It's become very popular, for example, in the spatial transcriptomic field. Or methods for amplifying the brightness of a single molecule by enzymatically or otherwise attaching large numbers of fluorophores to a target. 
um, some of these techniques are, are really specialized for preserved tissue or cell uh, preparation. Um, and so uh, if one can do a tissue or cell experiment, there are a number of specialized techniques that the community has been developing that uh, are, are, are interesting in their multiplexing amplification spaces. I think Ed touches on a very interesting topic here that uh, one may think about which types of measurements are best done in the living specimen, which are best done in a, in a fixed specimen. And if you think about it, in, uh, in fixed specimens you have uh, much broader options in terms of choice of super-resolution imaging, including, for example, expansion microscopy. And there's a much wider choice in the, in the labeling um, options. On the other hand, clearly the dynamic aspect is uniquely unlocked with uh, live imaging. And uh, for example, uh, if I talk about our own research here, we uh, recently took an approach across various disciplines, taking in elements from uh, you know, neuroscience and, uh, and, and sample preparation and labeling, uh, but then also uh, optical mod modifications to STET microscopy and uh, uh, improvements to the imaging process via deep learning strategies. Uh, and then amalgamating uh, these developments uh, from from different fields uh, really help address some of these big challenges. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Ed, you know, when talking about this expansion microscopy technique that that you're working on, what questions are you asking to to look at? Are you are you looking at one cell and, and blowing it up uh, to visualize the smaller structures, or or what questions are you are you specifically looking to see? Yeah, in our group, our, our day job is sort of focused on the brain. So our initial experiments were focused on cultured cells and, and mouse brain tissues. But one of the interesting things about expansion is that individual groups can tune it for their own purposes. So uh, a group at Stanford, Bo Wong's group, tuned it to expand bacteria and build up a microbiome, for example. You know, one of my alumni, uh, Jibram Chan, uh, now at Keist uh, in Korea, has published a, a bioarchive paper about expanding the entire mouse body, an embryonic mouse body, including bone and cartilage. So people can tune each of the steps, the polarization, anchoring, softening, and, and, and expansion steps to, to be customized easily for different purposes. If I may amend to this, uh, so one of the, the beauties of, uh, well, I mean, many of these imaging technologies, but also expansion microscopy in particular, is that improvements in, in one aspect of the workflow often will be very modular and will directly translate to the overall outcome. So we are uh, you know, constantly on the, on the lookout uh, where we get interesting new uh, input also that we could incorporate and, uh, and put this together into, into something that finally allows us to, to unlock some new type of information, which is what we ultimately want. So are, are you talking about new information such as different cellular structures or how structures are interacting within a cell? Or can you give a couple of examples of, of I guess, things you've, you've found interesting? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in many imaging uh, approaches, or I think what the, what the field is in general doing is that we realize that cells are not just made of proteins. I mean, they're they're made of many, many different constituents. Uh, there have been spectacular advances in imaging proteins, but then also putting them into their structural context, into, into the cellular context. Uh, and uh, 
taking other biomolecules, as, as, uh, as Ed mentioned in the beginning, uh, to, to visualize the, the transcriptome, uh, to, to visualize how uh, the DNA in the nucleus is organized, uh, to, to visualize, uh, for example, uh, lipid molecules. And uh, all these things are part of the cell. And, and we are so used to just, just seeing a very selective subset of uh, molecular entities, which may just be one or two proteins, but that's far from the uh, the general setup of such a cell. Uh, I mean, a cell is is made out of of well, maybe it, it's it's beyond ten thousand proteins being expressed in a single cell, and uh, then think of all the other molecular entities. So I think we're as a field working our way towards appreciating more how complex cells are, how complex they are in terms of their spatial organization and the molecular organization, and then how complex tissues are. Yeah, riffing on that, I think one of the great themes of biology is if you know structure well enough, you can make some pretty deep inferences about function, whether it was the double helix or the genetic code or the structure of uh, the earliest proteins to be crystallized. Seeing something uh, can lead to big insights, hypotheses and, and insights into how it works. And at the levels of cells, tissues, and organs, and even entire organisms, uh, our structural appreciation down to fundamental building blocks, anyway, uh, has been extremely difficult. But knowing how two molecules talk to each other by interacting, knowing how you know the components of a complex are organized in three dimensions to form molecular machines like ribosomes or synapses, or how an immune cell confronts an invader, you know, I think there's a lot of different you know areas where the interface is nanoscale. And seeing how it works can give enormous insights into what's going on in a healthy or disease state. And one development that I find particularly exciting in the field is that we're moving exactly from, you know, mainly working with uh, with generic cultured cells on a, on a cover slip to to the real world setting of, uh, as I said before, how the brain is organized. Uh, how various organs are organized in different species. And, and this very nicely complements and extends uh, the, the work th that is, uh, you know, more generic molecular interactions, uh, which I also want to emphasize has seen tremendous progress in the very recent past. I mean, you mentioned being able to image down to angstrom levels, maybe seeing how how proteins walk along their tracks uh, and uh, or, or visualizing how two molecular entities interact uh, with each other on the nanometer scale. I mean, this is this is fantastic, and I think that the field is doing both, moving to the finer and finer details, uh, but then also zooming out, uh, giving the bigger context and uh, imaging across scales. Yeah, so so what, you know, now that we're t talking a bit about where this is going in the future, uh, where would you both like to see this technology be applied in the future? Well, I'm very excited about um, the build off of a theme we talked about earlier, this whole idea of seeing the structure of life. You know, how are molecules organized to create cells, which in turn create tissues and organs? You know, there's a, when you see something, you can start to understand the building blocks and how they work together, right? So sequencing DNA, which led to the field of genomics, and now you know insights into gene regulation, gene expression, you know all sorts of things have emerged and have yielded enormous insights into DNA and DNA functionality and and DNA related uh, diseases as well. 
But what about proteins and nucleic acids other than DNA and sugars and carbohydrates? And the list goes on and on. You know, many of these also play very critical roles in healthy states and functions, as well as in disease states and progression. And so to understand how those building blocks of life are organized, how they talk to each other, meaning how they bind, change each other's conformation, results in fusions or cleavages of, of molecules, you know, all the ways that chemicals interact, uh, really requires us to see those, uh, I would argue, in the intact state as much as possible, in a disease state, maybe even ideally in a human cellular tissue, um, so we can understand how that configuration of biomolecules works together, and also how that goes into a, a, a drain state, a drain state in a, in a disease or pathological state. But I think if we really sort of visualize what it might look like, imagine you can see how these molecules are interacting in a certain state, and you see a drastically different configuration of the disease state. Maybe looking for a molecule that has a wildly different configuration could yield an interesting therapeutic target that might not be imaginable even if you didn't see how they're all organized, right? You imagine a bunch of known genes involved with, let's say, rare variants of a, of a condition, and there might be another gene whose product you might not see implicated uh, in those genetic variants, but it's a hub that talks to all the other ones, right? Maybe there are ways of mapping out signaling uh, through very detailed visualization down to molecular scale. So I think he had something, uh, said something very important when he was naturally alluding to genetic variants and uh, how uh, things may be altered in certain conditions. And uh, what, what I think will happen, and what I'm very excited about is that we will be able to give uh, tools to biologists uh, and um, well, researchers in general Uh, to, to integrate these advanced imaging tools into regular biological workflows that are multimodal uh, in their nature. And uh, with, with this, and, and working across the various fields, it will eventually be possible to, well, quite naturally find out what the mechanistic correlates of, for example, a particular genotype are. And uh, and if you if you imagine that that we go from from a particular genotype to a uh, to a, a gross phenotype in a in a certain mutation, it could be, for example, a, a developmental uh, uh, brain disease and uh, associated with, with microcephaly or something like. And uh, and uh, as we did in collaboration with a with a neuroscience group here at IST with the group of Guy Novarino. We could then link the, the, the genotype to a migration phenotype to microcephaly, uh, which uh, was mirrored in a behavioral phenotype. Uh, but then also it turned out that these uh, cells have a, a structural correlate uh, in terms of their actin cytoskeleton organization, which means that the cells are that, that the neur neuronal progenitor cells are just not as well able to migrate, and. You know, beyond the, the imaging developments per se, I think it will be very exciting to incorporate uh, all these developments into these real-world settings where they lead tangible biological, biomedical output. So are all of these, you know, applications, are these technically possible now or do we have technical challenges that we need to address before we can start to, to look at this? Well, I think there are definitely challenges for sure. You know, building the analogy to DNA, right? You have to be able to label and, and see something in a light microscopy context. So in light microscopy, we're mostly looking at some kind of label attached to a biomolecule. We're rarely looking at the 
the raw biological material all by itself. Um, and so labeling different kinds of biomolecules, like sugar, like carbohydrates, like lipids and proteins, uh, is challenging. I mean, there are labels that exist. For example, for proteins, there are antibodies, but it, it's still very challenging. You know, antibodies, a company might cancel the part number, and you know, there's always, a, I think this is well reported by, by many previously, you know, uh, antibodies, um, you know, are, are sometimes difficult to validate or to understand how they perform in different contexts, uh, like different fixation contexts or different species and so forth. So I, I think the labeling is one of the, the major challenges uh, in the time to come. Well, but there is all kinds of uh, practical challenges, uh, even if a particular protein, for example, is labeled perfectly and you can in principle image it. But then if you want to incorporate it into a workflow, uh, you, you want to be able to, to image this at, uh, with high re reliability, at high throughput. Uh, you want to be able to make sense of the data that you generate. Uh, I mean, as, as Ed was saying before, we're on the verge of being able to visualize a multitude of uh, molecules at the same time in the, uh, in the tissue. It could be proteins, but it could be RNA molecules. And, and we are uh, on the verge of being able to decode uh, you know, even the most complex cellular structures. Uh, but, but then for a human, this becomes extremely challenging to interpret. And what I see coming is a parallel evolution in the different uh, fields that finally go into it. Uh, and that will be labeling, as I just said, the, the imaging process itself, but then also very prominently the data analysis. And I think this is now just being appreciated. And, uh, and uh, I'm extremely grateful to our computer science colleagues who, who are really enabling the field here as well. Yeah, so, so Johan, I want to get back to one point that you mentioned previously, which is about how to move this field forward, we, we have these techniques and we need other biologists to expand and get the bigger picture and work with other biologists to bring this technique kind of to the masses, right, to really figure out what's going on within a cell. So how do we make these microscopy methods more accessible to, to researchers who are maybe not familiar with, with how to work these microscopes? Well, it's uh, not just about working the microscopes, uh, but it's uh, getting people aware of all the, uh, all the aspects that are relevant to it, getting to the, to the essentials of, uh, of the process. So I would argue that Ed has doing an exemplary job here in making things available to the community and, and he's certainly a very good role model for all of us here. And uh, well, what can we do? I mean, we, we can uh, tell people in our, in our papers uh, how things are done in the, in the most you know, um, educated manner and trying to give them as much first-hand insight as we can. Uh, and uh, then, uh, well, th there will be, uh, I mean, courses, uh, practical tutorials, uh, and uh, and all these things uh, finally make make people more more aware of it. Uh, and uh, many of the considerations are common to all super resolution technologies, like labeling or or the displacement between, uh, like labeling density. Uh, how how do I sample a biological structure with fluorophores or linkage error? 
how far are my fluorophores displaced from the actual target that I want to visualize. But then each method had, has its specifics uh, that people also need to take a bit of time to become aware of them. And uh, well, the, the dedicated groups, it's, I guess it's their job to, to help educate adopters. Yeah, education is such an important theme. For the expansion methods that we've been working on, um, we've uh, tried very hard to put forth photographic tutorials and how to perform it. Um, we've helped run short courses at different institutes around the world. At least pre-COVID, we've done quite a bit afterwards now. Um, thankfully, many uh, institutions are starting their own user group or message boards or, or short courses to learn the expansion method. Uh, one, one thing that we are excited about on the expansion side is to to maintain uh, forms of it that can be used by people with fairly modest microscopy hardware. Uh, there's also, a, I think, a new branch beginning where people are expanding objects and then using very advanced microscopes to get extraordinarily high resolution images as well. But uh, this this goal of democratizing technology, you know, and a lot of the, the fastest spreading techniques are, are very easy to use, right? Look at fluorescent proteins or, or CRISPR. Um, you know, they're, they're easy to use by individual biologists. Um, as I said, we're trying to see if, uh, uh, if we can uh, reserve uh, in this goal of, of uh, realizing, you know, magnification through chemical means. But for those people who are privileged to work at institutions that run central uh, core facilities, uh, I mean, to, to have these well-equipped with uh, uh, state-of-the-art microscopes is certainly enabling for for many groups and and I think it's an important concept that uh, research institutions should pay attention to to, to centralize resources uh, which means that uh, many people will be able to use these microscopes they will be maintained uh, at a high level and uh, while well, usage numbers are um, uh, are that high enough to, to also justify uh, the purchases. And uh, one, one thing that has probably changed in the past 10 years or so, uh, super-resolution microscopes have also become much more widely available and this uh, and other microscope modalities for sure as well. This is definitely helpful to, to help people lower the threshold to, uh, to apply these technologies. I would imagine this is really significant when we start talking about bringing this type of microscopy into like a clinical setting. You know, Ed, you were talking about using these images to look at, you know, abnormal cellular structures or as Johan, you were saying, genetic variants. Um, and if we're going to start doing this kind of with a clinical based application moving forward, you know, you have to have it available to, to people who will take that forward as well. Do you see any other clinical, uh, you know, in the future, clinical applications, diagnostics, perhaps, or anything else you can you can think of? Well, uh, sometimes the the step for these methods to be applicable to human tissue is actually not so big. Uh, once you, uh, you you try them, you may realize, oh, it, it's actually possible to work with uh, formalin fixed and paraffin embedded tissue. I mean, clearly, one has to keep in mind that these samples were typically collected just for routine medical diagnostics at a different resolution level. So the structural preservation of the samples is something that one needs to be aware of. But having said this, uh, it, it's quite astonishing of, 
of what is still preserved even with these standard uh, sample preservation techniques and um, in yeah I, I think it's it's totally worth to to take uh, or to, to explore uh, new methods and and see how applicable they are to these types of specimens like pathology specimens and at the same time maybe take inspiration from from those instances in medical diagnostics where high resolution is actually required and then take advantage of these properties that light microscopy has meaning it's great at visualizing specific molecules and uh, it's getting better and better at visualizing tissue architecture and uh, then it's uh, it's easy to employ and and with super resolution technologies uh, the well, the detail that can be unraveled is, is ever increasing. Yeah, and here I think it's in full medical use, of course, there are many concerns beyond the science. Now, who's going to pay for it? Will insurance or, um, or governments and so forth cover it? Um, regulatory aspects, of course. Um, and then, of course, the education and training of clinicians, which take place over extended timescales um, and often will be reflected in the you know, enduring hardware infrastructure of a hospital or other other facility. And so um, a couple years back, we published a paper in, in Nature Biotech, actually, where we brought together, or we were brought together with, you know, uh, it was sort of a self-assembly, I guess, process with many pathologists uh, um, over at Harvard Medical School to see if the expansion method could be used to help do nanoimaging for cases like nephrotic kidney disease or the early stages of the cancer. And so we did a, a study that we published together, uh, which showed that um, you know, uh, in situations like nephrotic kidney disease, where you know, these nanoscale protocytes are typically seen through electroencoscopy, indeed we could see it on a on a light microscope, um, an ordinary light microscope after expansion, or we could look at early in in, in breast cancer at a stage which is uh, often ambiguous for uh, doctors to discriminate, and we could by expansion uh, assist in the the analysis of such tissues. But of course, that's not the first step of a very long path, which which arguably has not yet been fully taken yet. Uh, and so it's very, I think, important to feel the, the bi-directional flow of information, the pool and constraints of the clinical world, but also the excitement and the push of the, the cutting edge tools. But ultimately, what makes it into the medical world will, will be uh, due to the balance between those two forces. But there is a very interesting uh, intersection area, not just in terms of uh, medical diagnostics that, that you were mainly, mainly alluding to, but also in terms of uh, pathophysiology. And I think this is where I think uh, these technologies can make a, a huge difference by being able to phenotype uh, specimens as a function of, uh, of disease state, uh, as a function of inflammatory state and, and help make sense of this. And, uh, then in a, in a more roundabout way, you could argue that this would uh, indirectly benefit patients in the medium term. Yeah, and, and is this something that, you know, AI is going to help with at any point? Do you see um, some potential for AI methods? I guess, Johan, you were talking about the computational downstream analysis of these images, but... Oh, absolutely. Uh, so uh, it has been one of the most joyful experiences for us to... Uh, you know, to, to uh, with with visual computing colleagues to venture into that arena, well, new concepts are just emerging. How to 
amalgamate uh, developments in deep learning in visual computing with the way microscopy images are generated on one side, but then also how they interpret it. For example, if you think of uh, image restoration, uh, uh, that, uh, which is which can be deep learning based and which allows you to to channel in prior information from a multitude of separate measurements, such that the artificial intelligence system already kind of knows what the sample should look like, and you use the actual measurement to uh, to uh, to to provide the missing information on specifically that sample. And then it, this information together allows you to reconstruct uh, the, uh, the sample in, in much more detail than you could just the physical measurement alone. So, so we recently employed this to reduce light exposure and live uh, stat imaging. But, but then also on the analysis side, deep networks are amazingly good at recognizing structures at making sense of things that are too complex for humans to do or too tedious. For example, hand painting uh, some of our uh, cellular life imaging 3D nanoscale structures that I alluded to before uh, took a train segment uh, for a tissue cube of 500 microns uh, cubed, which is really not big. Uh, it took that person 500 hours. So to be able to delegate this to, to a, well, a, a computing cluster uh, is an enormous benefit. I think that's a, a really great place to, to close and wrap up here. Um, I want to thank you, uh, Johan and Ed, for, for both sharing your perspectives on this topic. It's been a really fascinating conversation. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was episode 20 of Nature Biotechnology Forum. Many thanks to our guests, Ed Boyden and Johan Donzel. You can listen to all episodes of this and our other podcasts by searching Nature Biotechnology wherever you find and listen to podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments on our podcast, please tweet us at Nature Biotech. That's all for now. Until next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.